great. Part of the difficulty in trying to end early is that I never feel like I have less things to say. Um, and so just, just trying to navigate how to say those things in less time. Um, and uh, so there's always a bit of a delicate combination between talking really, really fast and uh, just deciding what should not make the final cut and what should. But let's try to just catch up ourselves and review a little bit. And we're just going to hop right in. So 1 Corinthians 12 verses 1 to 3 is what we're going to be looking at. And we did not look at verses 1 to 3 specifically last week, although these three verses have been a big part of what we have been thinking about and looking at the last several weeks as we're just trying in in a lot of ways to lay a foundation to how to think about spiritual gifts so that when we get to verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10 and we begin looking then at the specific gifts that Paul lists, we're able to categorize them a little bit and we're able to think about them because we've built a foundation. And so here's where we've been over the last two weeks. And the first big idea was that spiritual gifts are not signs and wonders. Okay, that's hugely important. Those are two different things. They're both two biblical things. You will find both of them in the scriptures. But spiritual gifts and signs and wonders are not the same thing. And I'm going to contend that spiritual gifts have continued... But signs and wonders have ceased. There is zero commands to any New Testament church or in the New Testament at all that believers are to go out and perform or chase or do signs and wonders. Rather, it's just reported that it happened. And it was the apostles and three other people for very specific reasons I got into the last couple weeks who did signs and wonders. However, signs and wonders will be a characteristic of those who seek to lead away believers from the church. It will be a characteristic of the Antichrist. It will be a characteristic of those who do not follow the Lord. There is a supernatural empowering, and I will say and go as far to say, demonic empowering of signs and wonders to lead people away. But they are not spiritual gifts. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Spiritual gifts are not signs and wonders. That distinction is incredibly important to understand. Then thinking through what are spiritual gifts for? What's the purpose? Well, last week we looked at that. And the language Paul uses throughout 1 Corinthians is that we are called to be building. That the church is a building, that individually we're God's building, but collectively there's also a building. And we are called to be building and to be builders. And our building and what we have built will one day be evaluated by Jesus himself. And it will be, did you build with wood, hay, and stubble? Or did you build with gold and precious stones and things that are going to endure? And so even how we build matters, but we've been given this calling and this task to build. Jesus used the words making disciples in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 when he gave the great commission. The ideas are exactly the same. It's part of what we are called to do as believers and then we are gifted for that calling. That's hugely 
important that God calls us to do something and then empowers us to obey his call. And so spiritual gifts are for the common good. So your spiritual gift or your spiritual gifts are not for you. You're not the reason you were given those gifts. They have been given to you for someone else. For the body. They are for the building up of the body and they are for the equipping of the saints. That word equipping, it's used to describe the setting of a bone. Or a related word to it is used to describe the mending of fishing nets. Putting things in order so that they can function in the correct way. That's part of what spiritual gifts are then for. And in Ephesians 4, where this idea and that word equipping is used, is that Jesus has given leaders, gifted leaders, or has gifted leaders in the church for equipping, for putting things in order so that they can fully function. Well, this morning, the question that we're asking and answering or seeking to answer is the question, who do I follow? And it's a question that comes from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 3, in particular, verse 3. And we begin to see, as we hop back into the text, some of the issues related to spiritual gifts that this church had going on. And what we're going to do is we're going to think about a little bit of what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. But then we're going to expand our lens a little bit. Still trying to lay this foundation. Trying to ask the question, who do we follow? In today's culture, it's it's in the church culture, it's in in other culture as well. There is a, a, a push to follow what's popular or who's popular. And those winds kind of blow and they come and go and they can change very quickly. There's even quite a push to follow where the supernatural is. And there should be no mistaking it. There are some supernatural things happening across the evangelical landscape, perhaps throughout the world. But the question is, are are, are we to categorize them in a let's keep it? bucket or let's not bucket those are some of the questions that this text and other passages this morning that we'll look at help us try to discern Jesus said beware of wolves dressed in sheep's clothing the apostle Paul told the elders in Ephesus before he said goodbye to them some of you guys are going to betray faith and you're going to lead others away he then writes letters to timothy he actually names those guys the idea of false teachers in the church the idea of us as people in the church needing to be discerning about who we follow and who we don't who we listen to and who we won't is something that has been throughout communicated throughout the New Testament, and it is incredibly, incredibly important. I'm going to try to dive into that and make a little sense of that. I'm going to try to give you my kind of top five things that I look for when I'm trying to decide, all right, is that a ministry or is that a leader I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to or seek to learn from, or is that somebody that I'm just going to be aware of and not 
learn from? Or is that somebody that I'm going to go as far to say you need to stay away from? I'm going to try to unpack some of that for you. So before we go any further, let's pray. We'll hop in to verse 3 and we'll start trying to make sense of this question. Jesus, we ask that you'd help us to think well. That as we think about this question, who do I follow? Who, who will I place myself in submission to in the perspective of being a learner? Help us to think well. Help us to, help us to not in any way move from or try to build any foundation or set any criteria that is not completely built upon your word. Guard us, please, from thinking that we need more, that we need something different, that we need something new or fresh. And tell us that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it penetrates and pierces to the most indivisible parts of us. Keep us from and guard us from error. Help us to think well about this question. And it's in your good name we pray. Amen. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12 here together, and let's just go to verse 1. We'll spend a little bit more time in verse 3, but let's just kind of try to catch ourselves up and remind us where we've been. Now concerning spiritual gifts, perhaps spiritual persons, that word spiritual could have been either way. It's actually an adjective that gets used to describe some things, and the word gifts isn't there, although the context clearly, as 1 Corinthians 12 continues, is going to speak about gifts. But the idea is now about spiritual persons, brothers. I do not want you to be uninformed. Paul wants there to be knowledge. Having fully recognized that knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. Who's not willing to throw knowledge out? But there's a right way to have knowledge. There's a right way to apply knowledge. There's a right way to use knowledge. Knowledge, and it's not to be used in an arrogant way, in a I'm better than you way, but it's used to be, and it's for building. And if knowledge is applied in love for building, then knowledge is profitable and helpful, and Paul wants them to be informed. I do not want you to be uninformed, he writes. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
So let's break down verse 3 a little bit together. Here Paul says to them, and it's kind of the parallel to verse 1, Therefore I want you to understand. That word understand there is the word knowledge. I want you to have knowledge. It's the opposite of what he said in verse 1 where he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. So I'm going to tell you things because I want you to have knowledge. I want there to be clarity. I'm trying to unpack something. I'm trying to cause you to understand some things that you might not have full clarity on. I want you to know this. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. That word speaking is going to show up a whole bunch of times come 1 Corinthians 14. And it's interesting to just look at the number of times that word speaking shows up. 1 Corinthians 14 is largely an entire chapter about speaking. And how do we unpack and how do we understand mysterious utterances? How do we unpack and understand the gift of tongues? How does prophecy fit into that? How do we even define those things? Hang on, we'll get there as we continue unpacking all of this throughout the next several weeks. But here in verse 3, I think this, this word speaking begins to maybe give us a subtle hint and points forward to for chapter 14 that part of the issue this church was struggling with was how to understand this spiritual gift of tongues. And there perhaps was an elevation of certain persons who had a more miraculous gift than other persons. And if you were going to put all the gifts side by side and somebody is claiming to be gifted by the Holy Spirit and able to speak in random gibberish, that does look a little bit more miraculous than somebody perhaps with the gift of wisdom who's able to just think a little bit more supernaturally in how the scriptures pull themselves together and be applied to our lives. You tracking with that? Some gifts have a little bit more flair, we might say, than other gifts. That's part of what Paul's going to get to come verse 11 as well in flattening the line. But here, I think we can begin to see some of the, the beginnings of what he's going to get into. That there were persons or there were gifts that had been elevated. And they might have been elevated to the point that they were, they were just accepted in an unquestioning way. And so if you were able to speak in tongues, you were able to be elevated and followed and listened to and perhaps in leadership, whatever that may be. But Paul's going to get after how we're not to elevate certain gifts or gifted persons above or higher than another. But here he's talking about this idea of who do I follow the very first thing that he says is, look, if somebody comes and, and they say Jesus is accursed, regardless of what flair they might have said that with, it's not of the Spirit. And that's kind of a bit of a duh statement for us. 
Like, why would the why would the spirit of Jesus say that Jesus is accursed? And just thinking about it, it's, it's a bit of a well, he wouldn't, duh. But it was enough for the Corinthians that Paul had to make such a statement. He had to give them that level of clarity to say, look, you, you, you need to think clearly and wisely about these things and about these people. And it is not of the Spirit if somebody comes in speaking things about Jesus that are not true. Conversely, he follows that up with, and no one ever can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Now, the phrase Jesus is Lord, culturally for these Corinthians, was a jam-packed, loaded phrase. In some ways, it needs to take our thoughts back a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because Paul there, as he talks about just the role of the Spirit in actually saving someone, there communicates to this church that the the people are saved because the Spirit has gone to work. There he says in verse 14, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so the Spirit goes to work The things now of God are not foolish. They're actually seen as wisdom. Those things, first and foremost, is Christ and Christ crucified. Those things now are the wisdom of God because the Spirit has allowed them and has has turned on the light switch in our minds to help us see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and what he has done for us and our need for him. So to say and make such a statement as Jesus is Lord was a jam-packed, loaded statement because Corinthians were Roman citizens. Corinth was a Roman colony, much like Philippi. So we thought through some of these same things when we looked at the book of Philippians. And so for a Corinthian, for a Roman citizen to say anyone other than Caesar was Lord, carried with it a death sentence. It was that loaded of a phrase that you have, because of your acknowledgement publicly to the lordship of Jesus over and above Caesar, have signed your death warrant. This is a loaded phrase and one that was not just merely words spoken but certainly would have brought with it a a lifestyle lived. Where allegiance to Caesar gets put in a different category than allegiance to Jesus. Allegiance to Corinth, allegiance to America gets put in a different category than allegiance to Jesus. And Paul's saying, look, those, those that are willing to put their name on that line, those that are willing to say that, are those who you can tell are empowered by the Spirit. They're worth following. Put our question into that. So no one can ever say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So to answer this question for the Corinthians of who are they supposed to follow, 
Paul begins by saying, you follow the people that are going to magnify who Jesus Christ is. Whose lives are surrendered to him as Lord. Who are willing to sacrifice everything that there may be to sacrifice because they know who Jesus is. They are willing to follow the risen son of God. And they're willing to say, it's not Caesar who's Lord of my life. It's Jesus. These aren't just words spoken. It's a lifestyle lived. Paul begins to try to unpack and lay out for this church as they think about the specific gifts and how they're used in their midst. Who should they follow? It doesn't matter how much flair you might have. It doesn't matter how much charisma you might have. It doesn't matter how, how persuasive of a public speaker you might be. What matters is what you do with Jesus. The issue will always be Jesus, by the way. And if you just take a look, think back through history, or just just observe things going forward, the major issues that always confront the church always have to do with Jesus. Jesus. And you can trace them back there. Sometimes it's a little bit of a twisty, curvy route. Sometimes it's a straight shot. But you can trace them back to Jesus. The issue is always going to be Jesus. Because if, if in, in some ways, here's the strategy. If you can undermine who Jesus is, then you can undermine the gospel. If you can somehow show that Jesus isn't the Son of God or that God's Word does not reveal who Jesus is or that he was, not, he, he was not born sinless, that He did not die, that he, whatever it might be, then you've undermined the Gospel. And this issue will always be who Jesus is. And we have other scriptures throughout the New Testament that help us unpack some of that. This is not the only place that we are commanded to test spirits, told to think about things, and who we submit ourselves to, who we follow. And so here we have in 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You see, Jesus is the big deal there. John 16, 14, this very first word, he, is about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's job is to shine a spotlight on the Son. That's why only in the Holy Spirit will someone say and live and act and surrender their lives to Jesus as Lord. Because that's the Spirit's job, is to glorify the Son. To unpack what the Son has revealed. To take the Word of God and to help us make sense of it. Acts 1.16, or Acts 1, 6-7. Here the idea is that we're not just concerned about glorifying Jesus, but we're concerned about doing so in ways that obey Jesus. 
And here the disciples, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They had a different plan in mind. They, they thought they knew what direction this thing was going to go. Well, let's take the risen Christ, who's no longer in the tomb, and let's march right on up to the temple and let's set up shop. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed, but you guys are actually going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go be my witnesses. It was an entirely different plan than what they had in mind. But I think they were genuine in their desire to see Jesus on the throne and the restoration of Israel take place. But So it's not just enough to say we want to glorify Jesus, but are we seeking to do so in ways that obey Jesus. This next verse is incredibly sobering. We thought about it last summer as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And my apologies for how difficult the bottom text there is. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus himself says there will be those who do things in his name, who work mighty miracles, those that, that, those two words, mighty works, there, that's the exact word that's used to describe the gift of miracles in 1 Corinthians 12. Casting out demons, is it, that, that's got some flair to it. Prophesying. You can do these things even in the name of Jesus and he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a sobering verse. So it's not just enough to say, I want to glorify Jesus. We've got to also then ask ourselves, are we seeking to glorify Jesus in ways that obey Jesus? And do the will of the Father who is in heaven. So I want to give you some of the things that cause an automatic rejection or perhaps a hesitation for me personally in thinking through this question of who do I follow? What leaders will I resource from? Who will I recommend? Who will I say stay away from? And I want to just clarify the word rejection because I think it's important to define that. And here's what I mean by that. You will not find me recommending these persons in any form or fashion, and there will be some, if not several, that I will just quietly work to keep their influence in our church at a minimum. In some ways, you will never know who they are. I'm not sure it's entirely profitable to just be out trashing names and throwing out all sorts of things. There is a time and place to speak honestly about certain persons that might have influence, but it's not what I want the sum total of my ministry to be. So there will just be a quiet working against influence. I gave you an example of this a couple weeks ago and just told you there are songs that we will never sing because they're written by artists that I just don't want to have an influence here. Not even going to tell you what the songs are. 
We're not going to sing them. But rejection will lead to names if and when appropriate. And I'll say this, only after a tremendous amount of studying from what I will call source material. And I had to really kind of wrestle with this as I was working through some things in preparation with the book because I, I, I name names in the book and, and quote authors. And did not do so lightly. Did so after about a decade of studying. But there is an appropriateness to that when it reaches that point. So let me walk through some of the things that I look for. These are my litmus tests, if you will. Do they use scripture like a conspiracy theorist use random facts? Alright, so here's what I mean by that. Is that their approach to the Bible? Isolating out of context, reinterpreting to fit a desired goal. You can find that a lot of places. Got a few books on my shelf that are approaching spiritual gifts in that way. Is that, is that their approach? That's going to be a red flag for me. There's going to be a lot of hesitation there. Secondly, do they make extra biblical demands on my life? You're going to see just about every one of these things is going to tie itself back to the Bible because that is the foundation that we cannot move from. So the extra biblical demands on my life is this. Are they saying to me, you need to do what I'm telling you to do, but it's outside of what God has clearly said to do? That's throwing up a red flag for me. And in some ways, it doesn't matter what it is. Could be send in $100 and I'll pray for this hanky and mail it back to you. I mean, you see that on TV. It could be a whole bunch of different things. Doesn't matter what it is. But if they're saying, you must do this, and they can't say to me, because God said you must do this, I got a red flag. There's going to be a lot of hesitation there. I'm not submitting myself to someone who's trying to make demands on my life that the scriptures do not make. Is the emphasis on knowledge or emotion? It's a big one for me. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be prone to knowledge. Some of you feelers in the room, you're prone to emotion. So I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. And I'm fully willing to recognize where my bent lies. Here's the thing. From beginning to end, God has clearly revealed himself in ways that his people could understand. And he has done so for the purpose of his people understanding him. Even when he showed up and did the miraculous, it was to lead them to him and to knowledge of him. And so if the emphasis of a leader or a ministry is on emotion at the expense of the knowledge of God and what God has said in his word, I got a red flag. Now, saying that, Knowledge of God, 
knowledge of God's word should rightly lead to emotion. And that's going to look different for some of us because some of us are more emotive than others of us are. But this is not like cold, sterile, let's just all be stoic people singing. Not like, let's, let's raise our hands. Let's sing at the top of our lungs. Let's be people that are, that are, that are expressive of emotions. Those things are healthy. But let's do them in ways that are informed by God's word. Not the opposite. Are there extra biblical guarantees made? So for here, I'm thinking about, is there a guarantee of healing been given? Is there a guarantee of financial increase made? Is there a guarantee of a gender of a child? Is there guarantees made for fame and success? A buddy of mine. His in-laws wanted to have a, a prophet come to his house, and he said yes, and he came over, this prophet did, and he said, you are going to come into money. I don't know if he put his hands like this or not, but I, I, I guess I am. He said, you are going to come into money here recently or in the near future, and the child your wife is pregnant with is going to be a boy. Well, the child was a girl, and he didn't get a raise in that near future. That's throwing a red flag for me. And this idea of extra biblical guarantees is something that really begins to be a characteristic of what the new apostolic reformation is, signs and wonders, theology. God guarantees your healing. One leader in such movement and answering the question on his website, is it always God's will to heal someone, says this. Jesus bore our stripes, and he has made payment for our miracle, and he has already decided to heal. There's no deficiencies on his end. All lack of healing is on our end in the equation. I'm not reading everything because it's... A little lengthier than that. If someone isn't healed, realize the problem isn't God. It's also not wise to blame the person. That gets an automatic rejection. That was Bill Johnson, senior pastor of Bethel's church. That's an automatic rejection. Because it ignores what God has said in his word. That yes, there may be healing. Yes, Jesus has borne our sin. Yes, God can do that. But it's not a guarantee. I read that and I, I'm just, like, I, I, I hurt and an ache for those of you, myself included, that, that have prayed for those who are ill and have asked God to intervene, but they still passed away. This guy says it's just simply not wise to say that it was their fault. Uh, the scripture is actually going to go as far to say it's wrong 
to say it was their fault. We talk about a litmus test. Are there extra biblical guarantees made? The fifth is Jesus a means to another end. Is Jesus a means to good health? Is Jesus a means to more money? Is Jesus a means to fame? Is he a means to an easy life? Is he a means to kids that are good citizens? Is he a means to a miraculous life? Is he a means to American prosperity? I mean, if Jesus is the means to anything else, it's false teaching. There's no other way to say it. To say Jesus is Lord is to say he's it. And the gospel is that I'm reconciled to God. That my sin problem has been taken care of and now God and I are in relationship together. That's the end. Jesus isn't the means to something beyond that. Now, does Jesus affect our kids' lives? Does he affect our health? Does he affect our fame? Does he affect our money? Certainly there are going to be effects in and throughout that, but that's not how this gets characterized. I read not too long ago that the, the good news of the gospel is not that you get saved of your sins, but it's you get to do supernatural things here on earth. That's not the gospel. That's Jesus as a means to something else. That is not Jesus is Lord. So is Jesus a means to another end? That American prosperity, I was reading in a magazine, a charismatic magazine a couple weeks ago, and that was actually a lead article. And the tagline there was, how can you thwart the ancient spirit's plan or plot to destroy America? And there was just then an articulation of how to thwart the ancient spirit's plot to destroy America. And I just looked at that and I go, the ancient spirit's got a plot to destroy everything. It's not just America. It's everything and everyone. Like this this weird pseudo-American first theology that emerges out of some of this stuff is just deeply concerning. Because it's not that... Satan just wants to take down America. He wants to take down everything. And how we think about things, these things matter. Who we surrender ourselves to in the position of being learners matters. Is Jesus a means to another end or is he just the end? So what do you do with that? Here's what we'll do, and I've gone over my time, so I'll have to take it from my other slot of time, which is a fat chance in that happening. So just settle in, all right? Read, read, read God's Word. And the best way to be able to discern error is to know truth. So know truth. far more valuable of your time to spend time in God's word than in books. Read God's word. Seek to understand it. 
in our September newsletter, I'm going to re-share an article that I shared oh, probably a year ago at this point in time. And it was one that I wrote for our fellowship in a, in a series they were working on. And it's on how Karis Fellowship Churches approach interpreting the Bible. They try to take some big seminary level things and compress them down into ways that can be helpful. And so I'm going to re-share that in our September newsletter. And I just encourage you to read it. It's two pages long, maybe two and a half at most. But as you think through the reading of God's Word, how you do it matters. And there's some helpful resources out there to help you do so. So, let's pray. We'll kill the song at this point. So, but we'll pray and we'll let our leaders transition and get some in, get some out. God, help us to just be thinkers. Help us to think well about these things. God, we want to think in ways that honor you and glorify you. We want to think in, in ways and we want to do things that, that seek your glory in ways that are obedient to your word. And so God, help us as a church, help me as, as, as the pastor, help every one of us individually to not just, not just do whatever we want and kind of tag on the, well, it's for Jesus' glory, or tag on the, oh, if God wills, but, but actually deeply desire those things. And seek to unpack and understand what it is you said in your word and what you've revealed to us. And we ask that you'd help us to do that and do that well. And pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.